Good morning, live from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman with Rabbi on the Sidelines, where sports and faith intersect. We are joined this morning by Coach Seth Greenberg, ESPN College Analyst, two-time ACC Coach of the Year at Virginia Tech, Maccabi USA Coach in the Land of Israel, but most importantly, a word that we like to use on this show, a mensch, a great person. Coach, it's so great to see you this morning. How are you? I thought I was doing this with Reese Davis. I'm doing this with a rabbi. Exactly. I heard you told me first rabbinic podcast. That's a moment that we say shehechianu. <laughs> <laughs> it but might be my last, depending on how it goes. No, no, no. And great, we're gonna have a and, an early happy Purim as well. And I just want to say, uh, I've been following the show on ACC Network, Bald Men Not on Campus, from a rabbinic podcast. A just quick suggestion. If we throw you a couple of keepas for the host, uh, that, that shows off the air. I know Jay's trying to say how many weeks it hasn't yeah, been canceled. Jay's trying to get us off there. It's one more thing he has to do. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll just dive right into it. Faith and sports. Um, do they intersect? Is there any moments of, over your college and uh coaching career that you have seen that faith and sports intersect? Well, faith and sports intersect in, in ignorance, probably. I mean, uh, I think that look, there's a lot of love in our world. There's a lot of hate in our world. There's a lot of people that don't know what they don't know. There's a lot of stereotypes in our world. Um, so I would say, you know, for me, and I, I can only speak from my own personal experiences. Uh, first of all, I mean, I, I've coached players that were deeply spiritual, whether it mm-hmm. was whatever their religions were and that, that that their faith was important to them uh and it made them stronger made them better it gave them something when uh, when things were tough i mean adversity i always say visits the strong it lives with the weak but if it visits the strong part of that strength comes from maybe your belief in your faith mm-hmm. uh, so i've had players that have obviously dealt with adversity in sport through their faith but then there's also you know personal experiences uh you know i mean like uh Unfortunately, the world we live in is a lot of hate, and there's a lot of uh, of people that uh, are mean spirited, and a lot of times mean spirited comes through stereotype. A lot of mean spirited comes through people that are different than you, whether it's black, white, whether it's uh, you know uh, Muslim, whether it's Jewish, whether whatever it is, people people say things that they don't really understand have consequences. It's the world we live in. It's 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 the social media world we live in. It's mm-hmm. you know, people are faceless. It started with talk radio. You know, people could come on talk radio and say whatever they wanted because there was no, they didn't have to be, be basically held accountable to their words. Uh, and then it spread to social media, other aspects of social media, which is, you know, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or anything else, where you can say things, you don't have to look someone in the eye and say them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people are, are too free to, not free, but too, too loose in terms of words have meanings and, and hurtful words have meanings and hurtful words are hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, as I coached, did I experience things of that nature? Sure, I did. Now, you know, when you're walking on and off the court and you're coaching in the ACC, uh, you know, people are going to say things. Uh, at, did they say mean spirited things? They said mean spirited things that had to do that were personal. They said mean spirited mm-hmm. things that sometimes that had to do with your faith or the way you spelt your last name, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is a reflection of who you are. So, it is some some of them you address, uh, some of them uh, which I did when we were at New Mexico State. Some of them you don't address because you don't respond because sometimes responding to someone screaming in the stands right. uh, basically validates them and actually gives them the five minutes of fame that they were looking for. So, 
Uh, I say yes, it does. I think the, the positive is I've had guys that were extremely spiritual that, that, that I think it really helped them get through some tough times. And I think that's in, in that matter, it's a good thing. So you say, you know, sports is an equalizer. You have a group of 18 to 22 year old men who really don't know each other besides the game of basketball. Are there moments where you bring those people together to learn those lessons so that ignorance does not happen both on the court, but really more importantly, off the court? Yeah, I mean, perfect example, Drew, when everything that was going on in the world uh, during uh, this summer between the pandemic and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and the social unrest in our country, uh, I had a, a Zoom call with 70 of my former players. Nice. And we just talked through it. And uh, I listened a lot. But our whole idea at the end of that conversation was that, you know, we didn't want to just sit there and talk. We wanted to leave there and have a conclusion. So we wanted to have basically solution-based conversation. And our solution-based conversation was at the end of it, we were going to do two things. We were going to try to touch someone in a positive way to help right or wrong, basically mm-hmm. to help someone look through the world through a different prism uh, and try to impact our community. And the second thing we were going to do is we're all going to, this is one of the things I've done a lot uh, in the pandemic because you can't touch people anymore because of the, the lack of of, of uh, the protocol that you need to carry on is I recommended to our guys that, you know what, pick up the phone and call someone who's had an impact on your life. Nice. Say thank you. And if it, just imagine if everyone did that every day, uh, how much better our world would be. Just the idea of picking up a phone. I spoke to my high school coach. I took my ninth grade coach. My high school coach, a guy named Erwin Stewart, and uh, just say, Miss Stewart, hey, you know what, during a difficult time in my life, you were always there for me. Uh, and it was great. I called my high school, my ninth grade coach, who uh, was during the time my parents were being divorced, and uh, he was like a rock for me huh. in terms of just someone I could, you know, kind of bounce things off of. And literally, we were on the phone for an hour and a half. And uh, I'm going to play. Hopefully, this summer, I'm going to drive out to Long Island, play golf with him, and, and and spend an afternoon with him. But I think, you know, if you have conversations, everyone says the conversations are tough. I don't find them tough. If you care and you can look people in the eye and you're honest. Uh, they're real. They're not tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you listen as much as you talk, they're not tough. If they're solution-based, they're not tough. Uh, they're actually worthwhile. So, like, I don't I don't find it hard discussing uh, difficult topics uh, and listening to difficult topics. And, you know, I don't agree with everything everyone says, and, and we can agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can, you know, Jay Bellis and I, we, we joke all, oh, we can disagree without being disagreeable. Like, it sounds very Talmudic. I don't know if uh, Jay knows the Talmud as well as you do, um, but well, he probably knows it better than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you talk about solution based um, throughout college basketball, especially this year, Andy Katz a couple of weeks ago said that no coach is going to silence a player. And just watching all of these games and seeing, for instance, the words on the jersey "equality and justice," do you see some solution based? Um, actions coming out of this season, especially in the pandemic, especially during uh, the times of racial tension? Yeah, I think, it, you know, look, I mean, you should, part of, of coaching is uh, educating your guys and putting them in, in experiences, but also you want to see them then grow from those experiences. Uh, you don't want to control them. You want to talk through those experiences uh, so that they can now form their own opinions. And then they can go on and do exactly what I said before is impact someone else. So I, I think this year, uh, you know, we've seen the world not be afraid to take a stand against, you know, things that have been the norm too long. Uh, and to have the, the young people of our 
world, not just our country, but our world, step up and recognize things that are wrong is is a beautiful thing. So, I mean, as long as, and you know, it's kind of silly, as long as the guys are educated, like to me, why are you doing what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Why are you saying what you're saying? Are you saying mm-hmm. it because someone else said it? Or are you saying it because you really understand the depth of the situation? Uh, you know, there's a difference between following and leading. And, uh, you know, you can lead by being educated in what you're you're standing up for. You're following if you just, you know, well, so-and-so said this, so I'm, I, I believe. And I think that it's really, really important that, you know, the conversations, bringing people in to better educate uh, your players on history is is the key. And then the other part of the key is how you're going about your messaging. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm very straight up. There's a difference between peaceful protest and looting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, you know, really, looting is taking advantage of a situation. Peaceful protest is trying to make change because there's wrong in this world and that your voice needs to be heard in a positive way. And, I, you know, I thought that actually, and I'm not a very political person, so I mean, but I thought Joe Biden put it really, really well during the course of the, of the election. He said he's 100% for peaceful protest. He's uh, 100% against opportunistic looting uh, of communities because you're hurting your own communities. And, and to me, that's, you know, there's no place for that because uh, you're hurting the people that need, to, need the most help. Uh, that are in communities that are trying to make a difference in communities. So uh, I, I think it's great what, what we're seeing, the activism of, of the young people uh, mm-hmm. and athletes in, 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 in college athletics. I think it's beautiful. And I think that uh, the coaches are using these opportunities as to be educated themselves, to right. bring people in to speak to their players, to educate their players and ed- educate them so that you know we can look eventually look at things through a similar prism. So let's go first back to Long Beach. When you were out here on the West Coast, you go to New Mexico, you uh, briefly referenced this just before. Um, take us through that incident where I believe you walk in the locker room, you see an anti-Semitic remark, um, and then you explain to your players what this is all about. There was some backlash in terms of how you reacted. Um, what did that look like? And that's not 2021. I believe that was 1996. Um, what did that look like in that moment and your reaction? Well, I walked into the locker room uh, for our shoot around. And I was going to go through a couple of things on the grease board just in terms of what we were going to try to get done in practice and the walkthrough. And uh, usually I go and I put the – when we go to shoot around when the kids are stretching, I usually put the, the uh, personnel on the grease board so that you when know, we come back later in the game, I don't have to deal with that. So I opened the grease board. and uh, I do that the same thing for the bar mitzvahs on Shabbat. Yeah, I see that. Make sure they're all there. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I opened the grease board and said, we're going to kick your ass, you Jew bastard. Wow. Uh, and uh, I was I was taken back, obviously. Uh, you know, obviously our kids, our, our players were understood. Uh, that was what anti-Semitism is and, and what was said. And, and we went down and we practiced, played the game. Uh, game's over, a very volatile game. We had a great rivalry with uh, – with New Mexico State. This was uh, fairly close to after my dad passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played Utah State first at home, which I flew back for that game, and I think that might have been our next game. And, uh, you know, I go to the press conference. I think I got a technical in that game. I'm not sure. But uh, we had a group of people at the end of our bench that were saying all kinds of racist remarks to our players. And 
some anti-Semitic things to me. And, you know, and I basically went off in a press conference and said, you know what? I said, this has nothing to do with the game. Uh, this has, this is bigger than the game and that, you know, there's no place in our society for this. And I, and, and the funny thing is when I saw it in, in, in the locker room, I'm a big believer the locker room's a sacred place. All right. Mm, to, yes. my, all right. I, I, like, you know, you've got the temple, I've got the locker room in, in my, my coaching world. Mm-hmm. And like, to me, the, the, the locker room is a great lesson for the rest of the world because in the locker room, uh, people are respected for who they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether black, white, Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, it makes no difference. Well, our world could learn a lot from our locker rooms because we have tremendous trust in, in each other and respect for each other in the locker room. So, the whole idea of first it being in a locker room was almost like sacrilegious to me. Uh, then we play the game, and we didn't play well, but we have these people down the bench that were using all kinds of uh, language that's inappropriate. So I go into the press conference and I say, uh, basically, uh, you know, what was on the board? I said, you know, if I ignored it, I'm condoning it. I'm not going. I can't condone that type of behavior. I can't condone those type of words. Uh, you know, I can't condone the behavior of the, of the fans at the end of the bench that were screaming at my players throughout the game. I said, and, uh, and I, you know, I'm going to stand up for what's wrong, uh, stand up against what's wrong. And if I ignored it, then I would be condoning it and saying it's all right to behave that way. It's all right to put those type of things in, on the grease board. Well, then the coach of New Mexico State says, uh, I was imagining it because I was just, you know, it was emotional because right after my dad died. I said, no, right. it, you know, like, Really? Seriously? <laughs> You're going to go there? And uh, so uh, what became a heated rivalry became a great, uh, more heated rivalry. And then when they came back and played at our place, we had this whole uh, laser show of unity. And our, actually, our university, did, Long Beach, did a, a tremendous job with it. But it's something that, you know, stuck with me forever. And it was great that we used symbolism of, of people being together and unity and togetherness and trust and but I got to be honest with you, I, I will never forget the words of Neil McCarthy when he said, well, I was imagining it. I mean, mm-hmm. there was nothing imaginative about it. It's you know, written right on the grease board. There's, you know, and the words that were said at the end of our bench, that, that, that wasn't me hearing things. I mean, I was, believe me, I was, I was 100% fine. Um, uh, so I, I just thought it was important to, to, to basically expose it. Great. No, that, that's amazing. I want to take us from New, Me- or New Mexico and Long Beach to across the ocean to Israel, as you also had the opportunity to work with the Maccabi team. You were quoted in many different articles saying, this volunteer position is important to me because anytime you can represent your country and your faith in the same event, it's something very special. Maccabi, you don't get paid to coach there. You do it for the love of the game. You do it for the love of our people. Um, from that incident in New Mexico, now to the land of Israel, basically Jewish Olympics. Um, Compare those two experiences. Are they connected at all? And how does faith play a role in those in those experiences? They're they're not connected. I just you know you know you go and you 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 make that trip and um, you know first of all you you can read all you want about Israel and 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 their fight to remain who they are as a country. And I you know it's it's it's, it's you know and again I don't know. I, well, I can say these words, but uh, we had a guard that was with us, an officer in the mm-hmm. Army. And there were two of the things that were really interesting, uh, I said, how do you guys, how do you guys deal with, I mean, like, 
you know, what is it like living here in this country you know, when you know that there's so much violence surrounding you and there's so much hate surrounding you? And uh, the first thing I said, and it's kind of the, the Israeli mentality, which I, I thought was really fascinating, is that uh, we were sitting at lunch and the member of the military took out a, a little small plate. He said, uh, this is Israel. Uh, this is this is the Middle East. And then he took a salt pepper shaker, put it in the middle. He said, and this is Israel. He said, all these people here are trying to kill us. He said, and we're kicking their ass every day. <laughs> which which was, yeah, as you know, it was kind of a little bit the mindset of, of how the Israeli people have survived mm-hmm. in, the, in the Middle East. Uh, but I, you know, just the the, the Maccabi experience of of bringing Jewish athletes from all over the world together, uh, from different countries, and having them have that shared experience, and having them seeing the athletes share their stories, and and it sounds a silly thing, but change, you know, exchanging pins and gear, and yeah. and developing relationships uh, was was phenomenal because, I mean, even though I grew up in New York and Long Island and obviously grew up in a, a, a fairly large Jewish population, you still, that was, that was, that was eye-opening that there was a commonality right there. Mm-hmm. And, and the stories that you listen to the athletes, the stories that we've all had the similar stories, which I thought was, was fascinating. So that, that was first and foremost, um, just uh, you know, to be part of it, the opening ceremony was phenomenal. Um, talking to the people that um, were assigned to us from Israel, you know, talking about the you know the the young people that have to go to the military that understand mm-hmm. they you know, and I, I asked because there's no drinking age in Israel. You know, so like we go to Tel Aviv and like you see these young kids drinking, and I like I turned to I turned to, you know, the guy that was our host. I said like, that kid can't be more than like. 13, 14 years old, <laughs> down to, you know, street, you know, drinking a beer. And he goes, that's fine. Once he goes to the military, he'll be straight up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just, yeah, but, but the, the pride, like there's never a time where the Israeli people don't have great pride in their country. Mm-hmm. And there's no time in, in, in ever that there's a question of lack of unity within the country. Mm-hmm. That was that was kind of because of the fight, because of the struggle, because the struggles every day. Right. Uh, it, you know, it's not a one time thing. It's not like, you know, it, you know, and and uh, to me, that was, you know, you could see just uh, the experience that they'd been through is so different than the experiences we go through in the States. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can see actually, you know, the Washington Wizards with an Israeli player, they take pride even within sports. Maccabi USA, Amari Sotomayor, and the list goes yeah. on and on as Israeli yeah. basketball is becoming big as well. And my brother coaches, you know, he's coached all over there. He won, he's won an Israeli championship. He beat David Blatt in, in the championship game when he was coaching. I think it was at that point he was coaching Haifa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's spent like probably last, he's coached all over the world, but he's spent probably six of the last eight years, eight of the last 10 years in Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, coaching in the program. So it's, so you, a, it's, a, it's, a, it was a great, it was a great experience. I mean, it was, uh, it was an important experience that my youngest daughter and, and just full of uh, disclosure, my, my daughters weren't bat mitzvah, but my youngest daughter flew out. She was born when, when she was born basically with my wife 
uh, to Israel to experience with us. Wow. Which, wow. Was, you know, which was a, a really cool thing. And, and, and the way they set up the Maccabi experience is, is part athletic, obviously part educational. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. And uh, so it was, uh, it was, it was really, uh, it was, I wish I could have done it. I was supposed to be the head coach years later. My brother ended up doing it because I, when I got let go of Virginia Tech, we were going to do it together, mm-hmm. uh, which I would have been an incredible experience. Um, but uh, and now he's doing it on a daily basis because he, you know, he he he's living there and like you know, like it's funny because I'm getting I'm finally getting my vaccine on on Monday, yes. and, and like he's already gotten his vaccine. And mm-hmm. Israel, typical of Israel, they are so far ahead of the world in terms of vaccinations and in their battle against the virus. But like he said, that's just, he said, that's just what they do. That's what they do. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you transitioned from coaching to telling stories to basically being in a rabbinic role, right? You tell stories exactly. in an unbelievable way. Take us through that transition. How do you decide what's, I mean, you can tell a hundred stories. You only have a certain amount of minutes on a show with production and everything like that. How do you decide to tell these millions of people each week who are tuning into basketball, especially as March Madness is coming up, that inspirational story. What goes into that? Rabbi, you don't have a guy in your ear saying rap. No, <laughs> actually we did for the high holidays this year because we had to, we were doing a production. So that was the first time we experienced that. Yeah. And so, I mean, uh, it's, it's different. Uh, you try to, you, you try to have, Put your stories in context. You try to bring something to life is basically what it is. What I do is I take my years of coaching. I'm at 36 years of coaching and playing. And you try to take that and, uh, you know, depending on the game or the situation or the incident that happened, yep. uh, you try to run a parallel. Like this past week, uh, you had a situation with Texas and West Virginia. And in yeah, the Virginia game where the two players really, really go at it. Exactly. So what I do, and you know, I, I reach back and I say, well, if you're, if I'm in that situation, how am I going to handle it? Well, from 36 mm-hmm. years coaching, I'm going to say, you know what? Look, we weren't playing against our next game was against Texas. Next one was against Kansas. You're not playing against Kansas until you can get your situation resolved in your own house. Mm-hmm. It's common sense, really. So I, what, what I do, I bring those two players together and say, like, we like, let's, what's the root of this? Mm-hmm. Why did this happen? How did this happen? And how do we move forward? And then you got to apologize to your teammates, not only apologize in words, but apologize by, by your actions. Exactly. Well, I mean, I, you know, you, you just try to reach back. If it's, uh, if it's an actual basketball conceptual situation of something that happened in a game, you know, like, you know, like right now, the big conversation that feuds what? People being on the bubble. Exactly. Actually, I was on the bubble for 48 straight months. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've got a lot of stories about the bubble. I mean, that's just the way it is. So, I, you know, I what do you think? Duke in or out? What do we got? Yeah, right now they're out. I mean, because they got to win games. Can they play themselves in? Yeah, they can play themselves in. Yeah, Monday looked Monday looked like they were in against my team in Syracuse. Yeah, well, yeah. But and here's the thing. So, what did Monday do? All Monday did was make their next game against Louisville more important uh-huh. because you know they don't have enough wins, quality wins, wins against the field to be in. So, what do you have to? do? You can't have bad losses. You got to have quality wins. So what the win against Syracuse did was obviously it kept them in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of things impact your ability to get in with your Duke or anyone else. What you're doing and also what's happening in other leagues. Like what if someone is an upset in a, in a league that's a one-bid league and someone else wins, now all of a sudden that eliminates, that eliminates the spot. Uh, for Duke, it's now they're playing against Georgia Tech and Louisville in the next two games in North Carolina. North Carolina loses to 
Marquette, that's a quad three loss. That game becomes bigger. And like if I'm Duke, I'm saying I, I probably got to sweep these next three. Right, right. So I'm a bubble mate in Louisville, bubble mate in Georgia Tech, and maybe even a bubble t- game in, against North Carolina. So, so yeah. when you when you talk about bubble and success, right? Often nowadays, in terms of social media and quick sound bites, success is winning a championship. Success is getting to a Final Four, right? Coach Beheim didn't get to a Final Four until 1987. Couldn't win a championship till 2003. Like, oh, right, that no success. But there are so many levels of success. You're a two-time ACC Coach of the Year at Virginia Tech. How do you measure success? Number one, how do you how do you identify being a Coach of the Year? How do you get to that that spot? Is it luck? Is it fortune? And what's the measure of success? Well, those teams that I, when I was coach of the year those years, you know, like everything's about ex- did you exceed expectation? Mm-hmm. My first year, I was ACC coach of the year. Uh, we just came into the ACC. People thought we were going to be the worst team in the league. We were going to devalue the league. Mm-hmm. We win eight games. We beat Duke. They beat us by 100. I mean, the first game was against North Carolina at home. The year they won that championship, they beat us by 100. <laughs> the game was at Duke where I got thrown out and they beat us by about 99 <laughs> from there to winning eight games, getting the buy in ACC tournament and beating Duke at home after we got beat by a hundred. So, uh, you know, we exceeded expectation. Uh, and I have really good players. I have really good players who were incredible people that were fiercely competitive, that bought in, that dealt with adversity, that continued to work, didn't get beat down. And our mindset was, we weren't going to be an opponent in the ACC. We we're going to try to compete and win just like anyone else. Mm-hmm. And then the second time, the same thing. It was a, a year we won at Duke. We won at Carolina. Uh, we were a half a game away from winning the ACC championship. And uh, expectation, we were picked at the bottom of the league, and we ended up coming third year. And well, we had good players. I mean, like you don't win without players. Tricky players make tricky coaches. I mean, that's just the way it is. And but how do you get those players? A good coach, right? Everything you know, that you've been saying you today. Evaluate and develop. You evaluate and, and and develop. I mean, no different than what you do probably with the young people in your congregation. All right. Uh, you know, you, you have people that have potential. And what are you trying to do? You're trying to bring the potential out of them. So mm-hmm. what are you trying to, you're trying to develop them. You're trying to mm-hmm. educate them. You're trying to get them to be the best version of themselves, be better human beings, be better to others, you know, impact the congregation, impact society. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, basically you're coaching. You're just, you're coaching your congregation. I mean, mm-hmm. it, Everyone's a coach. So like my lessons from the bubble, I I, I'm, I, w- I was pitching an idea, life lessons from the bubble, because we all learn lessons. Love from it. And, uh, you know, and basically, you know, my story. So like, I didn't have a – I played for Alabama at Fairleigh Dickinson University, better known as Harvard and a Hackensack. You know, <laughs> I didn't play for North Carolina. I didn't play for a blue blood, but uh, I had a great passion. Uh, my dad played for the great Claire B at LIU. Uh, I, you know, I was, grew up in a basketball environment and my brother and I, two, my oldest brother did, but my brother and I pursued a career in coaching. Uh, but the lessons you learn along the way, I've been fired multiple times. I was fired as an assistant coach at Pittsburgh because I didn't do what the head coach asked me to do because what the head coach asked me to do was unethical. So I didn't do mm. it. So Interesting. I let go. I took a risk when I went to Miami and left Miami to go to Long Beach State. Uh, you would say, why do you go to Miami to Long Beach State? Played in our first in a, as an assistant coach in a gym that seated about 1,900 people. Well, I looked at it as an opportunity. I didn't know one person in California, but, you know, again, life on the bubble, it was worth that risk. Unfortunately, you know, it, it was work, worked out for me. But, you know, I've been fired multiple times. I mean, I was the ACC coach here twice, got fired at Virginia Tech. I was mm-hmm. fortunate uh, that uh, I had enough relationships. I, I never had a coaching agent, but I did because of 
an opportunity. I had an immediate agent, Gideon Cohen, who I call the world's greatest agent, uh, the Montag Group and if management. Well, Gideon saw something in me and gave me an opportunity to work at CBS College Sports. When he was working there, he told me, I'll give you a one-day contract. Come in. Can you one come day. <laughs> And then at the end of that first day, he gave me seven days. And then, you know, from that, he wow. became an agent and and one of my dearest friends. And uh, so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, life's a journey. It's not a destination. There are roadblocks and detours. And how you handle those roadblocks and detours determine your success. And then you've got to have people. You've got to have people that impact your life. you got to have – everyone has a mentor. I don't mm-hmm. care who you are, where you're from. Rabbis have mentors. Mm-hmm. I've had great mentors. I've had great support from my brother, but I've, and my family, but I've also had mentors. I had a guy like Terry Holland, you know, bring me on when I got let go of Pitt as a, as a student assistant or graduate assistant or whatever. And, and he became a you know big part of, of most major decisions I've made in my life. So, you know, knock on wood, I've been really fortunate to have good people in my life that have helped me with this journey and traveled this journey with me. So uh, two last questions. The first comes from our, uh, social media audience um, in terms of compensating players based on TV revenues and more. I know that's been the hot question out there. You think that'll, uh, it'll occur or uh, you think it's the right thing to do? I don't think through off of TV revenues. I think what they should do is probably, I have no problem with name image and likeness. I think that would be a, you know, look, you know, you have a name, I have a name. We own that name. We have a likeness. I mean, we own that likeness. I mean, I, I think that makes common sense. Here's the deal. And I, uh, where I differ from others is I don't think that, it's going to be whatever it could potentially turn into legalized cheating. But like, especially with the economy the way it is right now, let's be honest. I mean, like ever is everything. You get You get a hundred thousand dollars and you get a hundred thousand dollars. You get an ad and you get an ad. And by the way, you're an influencer and you're an influencer. Like there's only so many people that can be influencers. That's the we <laughs> made in social media uh, as influencers. So how many people really, I mean, I think where you're going to see, uh, Players of all sports maybe have opportunities to run clinics and camps and make money. I think you'll see some local and college towns. I think you're going to see some players have opportunities in local markets. Mm-hmm. Now, these national brands, they're going to vet the people they hire for years. You Let me ask you, Rabbi. I mean, you're around young people all the time. If you are a CEO of a big corporation, and you're you know, obviously being a rabbi, you're like a CEO. But, like, would you take a 17-year-old on a college campus and make him the ambassador of your brand. Right. No, I mean, I think what it says, I think what you said earlier in terms of education and what's the message and, and they have to be the right person. Right. No, that's uh, who they are at 17. Do we really know who a 17 year old is? Exactly. No, and I watched the progression of people where you said development of people, development of minds. Yeah. I mean, one bad decision can, can damage your brand. So you've mm-hmm. got to be very careful as you're vetting these young people, you know, it's it, it just, it's just not that easy. And, then the other thing is I think we get so caught up in NIL, we lose value. We want to change the world. We want to level the playing field in the world. The best way to level the playing field in the world for race and religion and, and, and people in general is education. Yes. Like we devalue the value of education. Mm-hmm. You know, like here's what they, we should do with the NCAA. Schools should be able to partner student athletes with mentors from their institution to help build bridges for those people to cross to better themselves. Yes. So that when you graduate, one of the values of being a college athlete is when you graduate, you have these mentors that are going to stand beside you, not behind you, but beside you and help you navigate the transition into your next life. Mm-hmm. So 
NCAA, as opposed to saying you, they don't want interaction with alumni, should say, you know what? Once a kid comes to campus, we encourage this interaction with alumni. We encourage it because, you know what? If we can partner and have every single person in our athletic department be mentored and someone that you can count on to give you advice and to open up doors, well, man, that's more than than anything that they could give you. Absolutely. So we value, like we devalue education. We devalue the experience. And we don't understand the value of, you know, the the notoriety of being a college athlete surely is opens up doors. So I wish I'd love to see, I have no problem with NIL, but I'd love to see us put a greater value on actually the value of an education because the education is the thing that's going to change our world. Actually, we say every day in the prayer before the Shema, that we should learn and we should teach. And those have to go hand in hand, especially in the mentorship system. Uh, last question before closing remark. Um, I have a great friend. that's a big blue Michigan fan. Uh, Jawan Howard, coach of the year this year. I think it's a national coach of the year. It goes back to the same thing I said when I was fortunate enough to win the ACC coach of the year. I mean, like if you look preseason, Baylor and Gonzaga were one, two, and they're, they're fulfilling right. their legacy and they're, and they're phenomenal. But Michigan wasn't in the conversation. Michigan has a transfer point guard from Columbia. Uh, they've got a freshman, Hunter Dickinson, who was at the Math High School a year ago. He's a mountain masquerading as a man. The guy's been incredible. <laughs> and and you know, you've got Franz Wagner and Isaiah Livers and you know, Eli Brooks. I mean, what he's done with this team. And you can tell what a, the type of job he's done with the team is that his, his leadership is even keeled. Uh, and when they came out of the pandemic – which is really, really hard, even though it was just a pause for them. No one had the virus. Mm-hmm. They're down in the first half against Wisconsin. All right. And they go in a four, they outscore Wisconsin 40 20 in the second half. He never flinched, which means they're listening and hearing and believing and trusting. Nice. So, nice. Uh, yeah. I would say that uh, I, I, that's what I'm, I'm doing something uh, tomorrow uh, on a game I'm doing. And I, I that's going to be my pick for National Coach of the Year. Nice. You heard it right here, Rabbi on the sidelines. <laughs> um, last question. I ask every guest this every week. What's the message to our young people today? The value of sports and the value of faith, just like we began. How can they, if you wish, combine those two to make this world a little better tomorrow than it is today? Well, yeah, sport, sport is it, it, the most important thing sport teaches you is to you know, be a great teammate. Be, be a great teammate in life. Like well, the greatest thing you learn is in sport is to connect with other people. And whether it's e-sport, e- like my man Lenny Silverman, who's, who used to be who run, used to run the Jewish Y in Pittsburgh when I coached at Pitt, uh, who's done, had an incredible job uh, with uh, what is it e-sport, e-sport tribe, whatever whatever the organization is, which is whether it's e-sport, whether it's team sport, whether it's whatever, um, get involved with something because the great yeah. thing about sport uh, is that it brings people together, and get get involved with sport, not just you know, at, at your temple, whether it's whether, whether in your congregation, but try to branch out because you need to expose yourself. The great thing with sports is expose yourself to all different types of people of faith, religions, uh, uh, financial, uh, wealth, welfare, uh, or lack of it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that, that that's a great education in itself. So look, I, I just again full disclosure. I, I am not the, the 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 greatest Jew in the world. Uh, I'm proud of my Jewish faith, but you know I'm not a guy that's you know, that's going to temple. That's just the way I am. I'll go to the temple on the holidays, but I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not going to temple. We'll send you the Zoom link for this Shabbat. Yeah, but, <laughs> but 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 I think that the foundation of of my life 
um, I, you know, and seeing what my parents went through and experiencing anti-Semitism myself makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think that's something that's that, that's important. But I'd say get involved, whether it's the congregation or whether it's outside of your school. I think sport is a great microcosm of life in terms of people respecting each other's differences. And actually, we do that exactly here at Sinai Temple. Five years ago, we started a basketball camp. And I call it higher level basketball, higher level values. Every single day we have a social action project, um, whether it's collecting cans for the homeless. We actually run a special needs clinic of low income kids who are coming from East L.A. to Century City at Sinai Temple um, on a weekly basis, feeding them a nice warm lunch and giving resources to those parents as well. Um, so I can't, can't, can't agree more with you. Um, we are so thrilled. First of all, a big shout out to Code Cloud. I'm going to give you one thing. ABC Please. Food Tours. ABC Food Tours. Uh, Matt James, who was just on The Bachelor, uh, it's a nonprofit that he's involved with. Mm-hmm. And it might be something uh, that you guys would be interested in because that's the, the mindset of his ABC Food Tours is basically using uh, food to bring to bring young, uh, young underprivileged people together wow. to then teach them the value of nutrition, education, and goal setting. That's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. We want to do a big shout out to Coach Glaubach in uh, New Jersey who connected us and really uh, Nori Cohen, a good, good friend of ours at a Shomre Torah Synagogue. So uh, thank you to Nori and to Coach Glaubach. Um, we are very just uh, honored to have Coach Seth Greenberg, ESPN analyst, Maccabi Coach USA, two-time ACC Coach of the Year, and most importantly, a wonderful mensch. We look forward to seeing you college game day this week. Uh, ACC Network, uh, Baldman not on campus, an early happy Purim. And the message that you shared with us this morning really is a message of Purim to bring out the wrongs in society and to make them right, to take off our mask and tr- uh, reveal our true identity through sports and through faith. Coach, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Next week, the Jewish Jordan, we have Tamir Goodman joining us live from Jerusalem. The Jewish Jordan next week on Rabbi on the Sidelines. Thank you. Thank you.